This is Arab Talk on KPOO 89.5 FM in San Francisco. This is Arab Talk with Justin Jamal. I'm Jess Hanam. And I'm Jamal Dejani. Jamal, there's so much going on right now. We have a great show. Um, the big breaking news, obviously, right now for us to talk about today is the kind of, I would call it politically cataclysmic agreement between Iran and Saudi Arabia brokered by China. This is a huge deal, the fact that Iran and Saudi Arabia, who in the last number of years have been kind of at odds, if not political and military adversaries, are now agreeing to have their uh, basically diplomatic relationships restored in their respective capitals. But the more important thing is that this was brokered by the Chinese and not by the United States. This is going to have significant implications. We're going to talk about that. The second uh, big topic is the, uh, it's a very sad story, Jamal, because liberal Zionists are very sad right now. They're crying. They're lamenting the fate of apartheid Israel. You have the lamentations, if you will, of even Thomas Friedman, who's been writing extensively in the New York Times, you know, kind of pining for the old Israel, the apartheid Israel, where there was a fake democracy. But there's been a lot of critics among liberal uh, Zionists about what's going on right now, including obviously Tom Freeman. Yet the administration, this administration, continues to live in the past, continues to give visas to terrorists, you know, like Smotrich, uh, allowing them to come to this country on diplomatic uh, missions when the country the apartheid regime of Israel is on fire. Three more Palestinians were killed again just in the last 24 hours. So we're going to be talking a little bit about that. But before we get to that, uh, you had a really great interview with Faisal uh, Salah, the founder of the Palestine Museum in the United States. He recently returned from Rome. He attended an exhibit of uh, called From Palestine with Art at the prestigious Academy of Fine Arts in Rome. And also, this was a follow-up to his groundbreaking collateral event at the 59th Biennale, <laughs> which is a really, really big deal in Venice. So it's a fantastic interview. We're going to talk about art and Palestine. That's right, Jess. And uh, of course, we have to say that uh, in now uh, the Palestine Museum U.S. Uh, is in preparation to have yet another exhibit in Venice again, in an architectural event hosted by the European Cultural Center. It's called From Palestine, Our Past, Our Future. Let's uh, watch the interview. The Palestine Museum U.S. was founded in 2018 with the mission of preserving Palestinian history and culture in addition to telling the Palestinian story through the arts. In 2022, it ushered Palestinian art and culture to the international stage in a groundbreaking collateral event at the 59th Labinali di Venezia, considered the most prestigious international art event. The exhibit, From Palestine with Art, exceeded expectations with more than 150,000 visitors to the exhibit. When the exhibit ended, there were more than nine 1,000-page guest books filled with heartfelt comments of praise for the exhibit and support for the Palestinian people. In 2023, 
Palestine will be in Venice again in an architectural event hosted by the European Cultural Center in an exhibit from Palestine, Our Past, Our Future. Joining us on Arab Talk this, this week is Faisal Saleh. Faisal is the founder of the Palestine Museum U.S. He has recently returned from Rome where he attended a follow-up exhibit of From Palestine with Art at the prestigious Academy of Fine Arts of Rome. Faisal, uh, welcome again to Arab Talk. Thank you. Pleasure you, to be here. You were, you were last here just before the opening uh, of From Palestine with Art last year. Tell us about the highlights and notable events throughout the exhibit. How was it received? Uh, the exhibit was uh, very well received. Uh, we kicked off the exhibit uh, with... Uh, an opening ceremony event uh, that uh, included uh, music concerts by Palestinian uh, musicians there that was very well attended, both by Palestinians, uh, Italians, as, uh, as well as uh, international uh, visitors to the Biennale. Throughout the seven-month period of the exhibit, attendance uh, was very was very significant on a daily basis. Uh, anytime you go and you stand for 15, 20 minutes, you see 30 or 40 people come. Uh, I've never been there where I didn't see a stream of people coming. So it was um, an unprecedented uh, thing for us to see that many visitors coming in uh, to see an event. And uh, it's also uh, a byproduct of the um, of the Binali. It attracts a huge number of visitors from from around the world. It, there were a number of interesting people that stopped by the uh, uh, the exhibits, and we had uh, volunteers uh, on the ground there who uh, would uh, meet these interesting people, interesting people, and give them individual tours, uh, and. Uh, some of those uh, spoke Arabic also in addition to Italian, and they were able to meet with, uh, with Arab visitors who did not speak English necessarily or Italian. And um, a significant number of visits were arranged by univers- for, for university students and, and school students to come and uh, visit the exhibit and hear explanation of all the Palestinian symbols and the whole Palestinian concept and the Palestinian narrative. Uh, and that was a great opportunity to uh, to educate uh, not the Italian people uh, through this the, the school children and students of the universities, in addition to the adults, about the Palestinian issues. Um, it, it was uh, also uh, interesting to see a number of uh, publications uh, that publish articles about the exhibit, uh, including uh, you know some of the local. Um, uh, newspapers and, and magazines, as well as uh, some of the Arab uh, publications like the, the New Arab uh, publication and um, uh, the Abu Dhabi publication. There, there is a public, like an English uh, publication in, in, Abu, in Abu Dhabi. It's called The National. Uh, they ran a, a significant story about the exhibit. So overall, uh, we were able to take Palestine to the, to the summit of the art world and to uh, get information out about Palestine uh, through uh, the artistic work of Palestinian artists, which is a a very effective way uh, of of communicating uh, 
your story to the world? Were you able to track uh, where do the majority of the attendees uh, at the Binali come from? I mean, do you have an idea? Uh, are they mostly Europeans or, you know, what, what are the numbers like? Um, it's difficult to, to have exact numbers because the, the, the exhibit was uh, admissions-free, free admissions so that no people did not have to buy tickets, they just walked in. But what we have to track is uh, the guest books, the nine guest books that we have. Uh, it, they tell us that people came from every corner of the earth. Nice. So we, we have people from the Arab countries. We have people throughout Europe. And the number of non-Arab, non-Palestinians was significantly larger uh, than the numbers of Palestinian Arab type uh, visitors, which we, we were very happy about that so that uh, we're, we're not, um, uh, you know, preaching to the choir, uh, if you will. Um, and um, it, it, it is uh, a, a, an accomplishment that we were able to reach uh, these audiences. Now, uh, if you think of the audience, we basically had uh, three audiences. Uh, the first audience are people from the Arab countries, you know, like from Egypt and Iraq and uh, Algeria and Morocco and the Emirates. And uh, and then we had uh, the Palestinians. Uh, and, and for the Palestinians, walking into the museum was such a, a very emotional experience. Now, I've seen people cry as they walked in. Uh, it was something, uh, something to be really seen there. Uh, uh, there was a sign at the door of the building that says some Palestine with art and people, when they saw that, they could not believe that they're seeing that sign uh, in, a, in, a, in a street uh, in a European city. Uh, and then they just see the sign and walked into the building to see the exhibit. And uh, we had Palestinian music playing throughout the, uh, the exhibit hours. Uh, so it was quite a, quite a scene. And, um, and then the, the third audience was the, the, the non-Palestinian, non-Arab audience who were very curious as to what is this Palestinian art is all about. And uh, they, they were very surprised. They expected to come and see doom and gloom uh, in the room. Instead, they saw very bright colors and, and very up, uh, uh, you know, atmosphere. And then they were very impressed by the fact that our artists, despite uh, the conditions they live on and, and all the struggle they're going through, they're still able to dream and, and be optimistic about the future and, as expressed throughout the colors and, and the works that, they, that we exhibited. I mean, th th this sounds to me um, a pleasant surprise or uh, unexpected. Were, were there uh, any other uh, unexpected or pleasant surprises that uh, you discovered? Um, tried, to, tried to think in uh, it's a little difficult. Um, I mean, what what surprised us also is the number of Italian people who were so keen on helping us and supporting us. Uh, I mean, to have volunteers that come and spend the whole day on Saturday and the whole day on Sunday right. with hordes of people and, 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 and giving them tours uh, is really uh, heartwarming. And uh, just like, you know... Uh, what happened at the World Cup, uh, we discovered that Palestine is so popular among the Arab uh, masses, and, and, and that was a, a, a big surprise. And we also found a big surprise how, how much support uh, that Palestine had in, in among 
Italians and Europeans and, and the people around the world. So I, I would put it in the same category as the World Cup, but maybe not with the same kind of media exposure the World Cup had, but uh, but the, the same thing, you know, to, to see people from Morocco writing us poems uh, about Palestine, it was it was it was quite interesting. And uh, people from Algeria and from uh, from China and from Vietnam and, and and from Australia, from all over the place. So you felt at home, really, which is nice. I mean, I mean that to have the, the host country so welcoming, and and I know. Also, Italians appreciate art. I mean, that's <laughs> that's something. Of course, <laughs> very, very nice about that. Tell us about uh, the follow-up three-week exhibit you recently returned from at the very prestigious Academy of Fine Arts in Rome, Accademia yeah. del di Bell Arti di Roma. Yeah. Accademia di Bell Arti di Roma. That's mm-hmm. the the proper difficult pronunciation. Uh, the, the, the academia is, is really, uh, the, this is described as the center of, of the world art. You know, it, it is the world's center of art. It is the most prestigious art establishment in Italy and thus in the world because Italy is the center of the world's art, as we all know. Uh, it's been around over a hundred years. Uh, it, uh, it attracts students from around the world, um, and uh, we had some c- connections uh, with some of the friends and supporters that we have who had very high connections into the academia, and they were able to secure for us uh, an invitation to exhibit uh, at a short notice, uh, mind you, because a lot of these things are booked years ahead. Uh, and they secured for us a three-week um, exhibit, uh, which was, is, is, is quite good. And just to be there, like for for one day, uh, is, is significant enough for us. And the the ceremony we had an opening ceremony at the um, at the academia that far exceeded the ceremony we had in uh, in Venice. Uh, first of all, it was held in a nice auditorium, uh, and we had a hundred and fifty people, including you know a dozen. Uh, People from uh, ambassadors and people from the diplomatic corps in in Rome that that attended, and um, I kicked off the the ceremony uh, with an eight minute uh, uh, opening remarks. And um, uh, when I was preparing for my remarks, I decided that I I really have to make this memorable and make it impressive to the people who were there. So I decided to to read my remarks in Italian. And uh, I only I only know about sixteen words in Italian, <laughs> uh, so I got with some friends and I wrote the remarks in English. They translated them for me in Italian, and they kind of uh, coached me on it for a couple of hours. And I I'm, I'm a good student, so I really listened. And so you asked and, it, and so <laughs> and then I had to stand in front of hundred and fifty people. And, and and give this eight minute uh, talk. Now they challenge you. They ask you questions in Italian. Well, no. At the beginning, at the beginning, I said, you know, I have decided to to give my talk in Italian out of respect for the Italian culture, the Italian nice. art, Italian people, and it, it, it's an honor for me to stand in front of you here and try to speak Italian uh, <laughs> uh, to you. Uh, and uh, I got a lot of clapping and it was it was 
uh, it was very well received, let's put it this way. People were very impressed by that, the fact that I took the time and the effort to, to address them in their own language. And, and I thought that, that was... Well, here is some, some connection between uh, Palestinian-speaking and Italian-speaking. They're both expressive, and they use a lot of hand gestures, so you didn't have a problem with that. No, no, I just <laughs> have a problem. Uh, there are a lot of complicated rules for how do you pronounce the, the, the syllables and the words. Luckily, they're all consistent. You know, like if, if if there's an I after a C, it's a ch sound. <laughs> and uh, if it's a CH and and, 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 a, and a, an E after it, it's a K sound. And it took me a while to, to uh, figure that out. But uh, at the end, uh, it was really very well received. And at the end of my remarks, uh, I said something in Italian like, uh, as our artists dream and and create their, their wonderful uh colors and, and and bright ideas they dream about the free palestine from the river to the sea and then at that point everybody stood up uh and clapped and uh, and then after that the uh, the director of the uh, academia uh g- gave a talk after me in italian also i mean i assume with events like this you have to have a synergy you know like you mentioned earlier that just the fact that you were invited to this prestigious venue and the importance of the venue and then I would assume also the curator was supporter, supportive of the theme of the exhibit, right? I mean, of course. Yeah. Th- these all have to kind of uh, work hand in hand. Uh, has this uh, raised the profile of some of the exhibiting artists? I mean, do you, do you, do you sense a, an immediate uh, result from that? I, I think so. I, I think, uh, you know, the... The artwork was uh, published. A lot of it was published in a, in a number of uh, uh, publications uh, after the Rome exhibit, and uh, there were a lot of inquiries about the artwork. People wanted to know who was this artist and where where they located, and uh, uh, and we expect that some of these artists would have uh, connections in the future, and maybe they'll come. Uh, you know, be invited to study there or participate in joint uh, collaborative uh, projects um, or invited to residencies, uh, art residencies and things like that. So I think it was very beneficial to the artists. And, and you know, as a minimum, the artists can now put on their CV uh, exhibited at the Academia di Bellarti di Roma. Yeah, yeah. That, it's not a, a small thing, you know, it's a very important thing. Uh, uh, mention uh, as far as uh, one's records, if you will. Palestine's uh, narrative will be told again in Venice uh, this year at the at an architecture-themed event hosted by the European Cultural Center. From Palestine, our past, our future. What were the origins of, of this concept? Well, uh, basically this concept... Um, came out of the fact that uh, the Venice Biennale itself uh, has seven different uh, branches to it. Uh, in addition to the art, uh, they have architecture, they have cinema, theater, and dance. And uh, the architectural Biennale that the, is, is done every other year in alternate years with the art Biennale. So 2023 was the, ar- the, ar- the uh, architectural Biennale. Now, we applied to the architectural Biennale 
to do a collateral event, the same thing we did with the art. And unfortunately, our, uh, our application uh, was denied. And uh, we think it was denied for a couple of reasons. Uh, one is they decided uh, to only offer uh, or approve nine collateral events, whereas in the art, there were 31 collateral events. So they narrowed the scope of, of the collateral events. And uh, most of the uh, participants in the collateral events, they were selected. Uh, they were most like countries almost. It was like one was Scotland was the collateral event. Another one was Hong Kong as the collateral event. So it looks like, you know, we were we were kind of superseded by some other uh, priorities that the the uh, curator of of the of that uh, binali uh, had. Uh, so, and also our theme was a bit more aggressive this time. Uh, our theme really uh, the, the the title you read doesn't really tell the whole story. It's very broad in general, but the theme is uh, we are focusing on the 500 Palestinian villages that were depopulated and, and most of them destroyed by Israel in 1948. So the, the, really the subject matter here is what did Israel do in 1948? So let me clarify. Uh, so, you know, for our listeners and viewers, uh, the exhibit is about displacement of Palestinian throughout history. Now, uh, from what I gather, there are two sections whose combined imageries show the tragedy of human expulsion that Palestinians continue to face to this day. Explain what these two sections will consist of and how they will be organized. Okay, the, the, think of the exhibit as having two walls, uh, two parallel walls. On one wall, we intend to show the past. And the past is, you know, uh, what Israel did. Uh, and not just the expulsion, but the massacres they did. And uh, and to really illustrate that, uh, we are using uh, a very large Palestinian map. It, it's it's about uh, 10 meters uh, long by 3 meters uh, wide. And that map is going to be laid on the floor of the exhibit hall. The exhibit hall itself is 150 square meters. It's about 1,600 square feet of exhibit space, which is as big as a house base, a big house almost. Right. Uh, and, that, and that's a very large exhibit, uh, and it has very high ceiling. The ceilings are about five or six meters high. Um, on one side, we will show that, you know, what happened in 48, and, and, and we will show the destruction, you know, the, all the bad things that happened, and, and we will show the impact of that. We would show, you know, images of refugee camps, images of refugees, uh, images of the ruins of homes and the remnants of Palestinian life uh, that was today it still stands in ruins. Uh, if you look travel throughout the historic Palestine, you would see dozens and dozens of villages that are still there, vacant, and houses that are destroyed. You see an arch here, a wall here, uh, a portion of a room here. You see remnants of life there. You see a a stone that was on top of a well. Uh, so we will uh, highlight that and show that, to show uh, the extent to which the Palestinian society and Palestine life was attacked by Israel and, and a good part of it was destroyed 
and the hundreds of thousands of people who became refugees and and still to today 75 years after are suffering from the impact of what Israel did uh, in, in 1948, which was the culmination uh, of a settler colonial project uh, that is exclusive and racist in, in nature. Uh, now, on the other side, we intend to show the future, and the future will be artists' uh, imagination of what the future looks like and see abstract uh, paintings of bright colors, uh, we see maybe depictions of Palestinian landscapes uh, that look a lot different than today's landscapes sort of full of settlements where the top of the mountains was sliced and replaced with stacks and stacks of buildings and streets and other, other forms of urban uh, sprawl. And um, specifically also, uh, we will show a 3D model of four uh, Palestinian villages uh, that were designed and re-envisioned by teams of Palestinian architectural students. Uh, these uh, are the outcome of uh, an annual competition that uh, Dr. Salman of Wasitte and his organization, Palestine Land Society, conducts each year and uh, gives uh, Palestinian uh, and Arab uh, architectural students in their final year an opportunity to work on uh, a, a number of these villages and 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 think and re envision what they should what they could look like in the future under free Palestine and a future where peace is 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 at hand at that point. Uh, so we have both sides, the past and the future, and we have the map on the floor where it's going to the, the villages and the towns are going to be color-coded as to what happened to them, including where the massacres took place. Uh, so this whole thing is going to be very embarrassing for Israel. Uh, I can't think of anything else that's going to be any more embarrassing than that. We're going to show uh, on a large TV uh, excerpts from films uh, and videos uh, that talk about you know, the, 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 the Nakba and the aftermath of the Nakba. Uh, and we will also show music. And so it, it will show uh, the extent of the destruction, but the Palestinian resilience and the determination to see, to see this through into a bright future. Well, I mean, Israel spends uh, millions and millions of dollars trying to erase Palestinian history, art, culture, the villages you're talking about, I remember visiting uh, the village of Lifta. I mean, you could go walk around there and see, imagine the life that was there. And in a way, uh, through this art is bringing back the memory, aside from expo uh, exposing the atrocities committed, but you're really bringing this back to life. Yeah, we, we, we are. We, we want the world to know what happened. Israel, like you said, um, they destroyed the villages. Uh, they covered them up with uh, invasive species of trees. Pine trees. Uh, alpine, alpine, alpine pine trees. Yeah, parks. <laughs> uh, they basically buried the truth uh, and changed the names of the villages as if nothing had happened. Right. And, uh, and, and our job is, is to surface all that. You know, we, we want to show the ghosts 
that are residing in these hulks of buildings and in these ruins uh, that, that they still till today are sitting there vacant uh, with, with nothing there except for overgrowth and cactus that's growing uh, on those buildings. Uh, and, How is uh, everything progressing? Uh, you've probably established somewhat of a knowledge base after the first exhibit. I mean, do you feel the the, the biggest challenge was uh, the Binali? That's like a, a big deal. And now you're on your third one uh, on a, an international level. Do you feel like you you're you're more comfortable dealing with all the challenges? We we are more comfortable in a way. Uh, and uh, we we know we understand the process a little better. We're able to deal with deadlines and timelines better. And some things that we've already invested effort into, for instance, like for the Venice Biennale, the Art Biennale, we we created a book, uh, a hardcover coffee table book about the exhibit. And uh, we are going to create another book about this exhibit. And uh, we would simply just go through the same process. We already worked with a vendor, and we just have to produce a new the new content and and do that book so that cuts our work quite a bit uh we've uh, we've retained a couple of palestinian architects as curators um uh, and uh we're working uh with those architects so they're, they're young and bright and uh, uh and they're, they're all very well credentials uh and uh, the three of us uh, are the, is are, are the team uh who's working on this project and try to bring it to light and the opening ceremony is May twenty May May twentieth, and it's in Venice. Uh, it's a Saturday, and we will be holding a ceremony. It's like the one we held at the at the Art uh, Biennale. So we hope that people would would visit in the summer there. And uh, we're also trying to uh, raise funds to to fund the uh, the, the project. As you can imagine, uh, a, a hundred and fifty square meter room for six months with all the services that go with it, uh, is not a cheap uh, proposition here. Yeah. How, is, how is that going? Because I, I noticed we didn't talk about this, and, and uh, it's all, I mean, these are all challenges, and it's, uh, I know you have all the support, but I can't imagine uh, taking a task like this comes, like the money is going to come from thin air. No. So, so how, how are you getting support from, the community in the United States, for example. Well, we're getting some, but we're still we still got a long way to go. We we're in in conversation with with uh, other people, and uh, we encourage people that uh, may uh, hear us talk about this to to uh, uh, consider uh, joining us uh, in this effort. Uh, this is not an individual effort. This is a a community effort. Every Palestinian. Uh, stands to gain uh, from from this work that we're doing, and we I'd like to see as many people stand with us uh, with, with their with their resources as well. Uh, we appreciate uh, you know the the moral support and and the nice uh, the, the the kind words, but also uh, you know to to do something significant with impact, uh, you need to spend money. And uh, unfortunately, our enemies are not short on money. And, uh, uh, you know, there are 77 museums in the U.S. that support Israel and promote Israel. And, uh, you know, and, and we have one significant museum that's doing it for Palestine. Uh, 
it's um you know we're, we're outgunned uh but uh you know we're on the right side of history and we have a very good story to tell and it's a compelling story and it's a, it's a story worth standing behind and supporting so when people want to support uh, your projects they just have to go to your website and and it is and it is palestinemuseum.us uh, and uh, if you want to send an email it's info at palestinemuseum.us so uh, so do you have also on the website links to your upcoming exhibits like for example where people can buy tickets uh there are no tickets to buy it's free admission it's free yeah that's uh, that's the crazy thing about this i mean you're doing this it's all free pretty much free admissions yes yeah well, uh, Faisal Saleh, um, this is a great project again, and we're so proud of what you're doing. I mean, uh, my God, I'm like, wow, the, the Binali, and now you're moving on to bigger and bigger and more important uh, venues, and um, you really put Palestinian art uh, on, the, on the map, uh, so... Uh, Thank you for doing this, and thank you for coming on Arab Talk. Thank you. Really appreciate it. And thank you to the audience, too. That's the voice and the face of Faisal Salah, the founder of Palestine Museum U.S. He recently returned from Rome, where he attended an exhibit of uh, from Palestine with Art. He also, this is on the heels of the Biennale that uh, he was invited to participate in in, in Venice. Uh, there's another European cultural exhibit from Palestine, our past, our future. Wow. Uh, contrary to the United States, Jamal, Palestine is on the map everywhere else in the world. This is a very impressive thing that he's done. It's very impressive. The museum is very impressive. Uh, and uh, this uh, new exhibit, uh, Jess, which is uh, has a different theme, uh, even though you know art is exhibited, but this one... Uh, basically starts by, uh, I would say, mapping uh, Palestinian towns and villages uh, pre-1948. Some of them exist, some of them they have been reappropriated by Zionist settlers, uh, but a lot of them, many of them are deserted. And so there'll be a huge map on the ground showing all these uh, towns and villages and, of course, connecting it to, to culture, art, history, etc. So it has a, a different way. In, in a way, it's reliving Palestine 1948 uh, through art. And what a what a momentous uh, occasion to celebrate Palestine through Art Jamal. You know, we're approaching the 75th uh, commemoration of the Nakba, the catastrophe, when uh, you know 800,000 plus Palestinians were forcibly removed from their homes. You know, close to 600 villages were depopulated, and this art exhibit. Uh, is going to bring all of that to life and to say Palestine is here and it's not going anywhere. It's going to be a tremendous exhibit. That's right. So uh, moving on to our... Uh, what stories. a big deal. Jamal, this is, this is such a big deal on so many levels. 
Well, uh, some analysts uh, described it as a big slap in the face uh, to Benjamin Netanyahu, and and will 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 say why. And I, I have re- my reservations on it, but nevertheless, Saudi Arabia, in uh, prior to this, uh, in the weeks in the week before, uh, there were reports that it was looking uh, for United States for security guarantees and help with its civilian nuclear program as a condition for uh, normalizing relations with Israel. I mean, this has been on the table for many months now that, uh, you know, wait a minute, next week, next month, Saudi Arabia will normalize relations with Israel. So that story broke that now we're getting closer that uh, maybe the United States is dangling something in front of Saudi Arabia either sell them nuclear reactors or help them in, in, in getting those nuclear re- reactors and, and Congress is not going to object to have them. And in return, um, they know they will normalize relations with, with Israel, part of this whole so-called Abraham Accords. Uh, exactly, thing. exactly. And, and and we talked a little bit about this, you and I, and I said, oh, this is kind of uh, looks fishy a little bit in a way. And it's very sad because you know, Saudi Arabia has uh, withstood its ground saying they, that it will not normalize unless Palestinians um, get their rights, uh, you know, in, in Palestine. And there were things, if you remember, uh, the relations between Saudi Arabia and the United States have not been good under the Biden administration. Not at all. They're, last, in fact, they're, they're bad. Yeah. Last year, uh, Biden promised Saudi Arabia would suffer consequences, if you, if you recall, after Saudi led OPEC plus, uh, the oil uh, cartel unexpectedly announced it would cut production. Though the Biden administration had, had has not taken any any proactive things to punish it, but they were also shocked because they wanted everybody to kind of buy in in this uh, war uh, between Russia and the Ukraine and the right. decision by the United States to boycott. And, and now we're finding, and this is a whole different topic, destroy the pipeline, our, uh, you know, the involvement in this, the destruction of the pipeline. To Europe and and Biden thought like I'll pick up uh, my phone and and call MBS and say hey uh, we need your help here we need more oil because uh, you yeah. know and, and that was rejected by and, MBS and, and and this way you know we lowered the prices if you recall last summer what oil prices reached six and a half dollars right here in California right. And uh, MBS and I remember seeing an interview by his ambassador saying, "Listen, we have our own interests. Also, we're not gonna. I mean, we're not gonna just line up and lose money uh, just to please you to be uh, another partner in in this war." And and so that so things have been a little bit sour, I would say. No, that's uh, but that's putting it mildly. I mean, the visit where Biden went to meet MBS, not the other way around, the famous fist bump summit was a bust, according to, you know, what the U.S. wanted to get out of it. And Saudi Arabia is doing its own thing, Jamal. Do you do you know that Aramco reported 
that uh, their their profits were a hundred and sixty eight billion dollars. Huge profits. They just actually, huge... you're right. They, they, they reported this. So just like so, any other country, they're looking for their own interests. Interest. Yeah, and and we'll talk about this. I mean, I have my reservations about Saudi Arabia too, in relation to the question of Palestine, because I think it's 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 kind of you know pretty dirty to be honest, but. You could make the analysis that MBS, from the perspective of his own unique, narrow Saudi interests, is acting in what he believes is his own best interests. And But normalizing relations with Iran, Jamal, that's a big political shift. Well, that's the big slap on the face. So on Friday, Saudi Arabia and Iran announced that they had agreed to reestablish diplomatic relations after basically just seven years of hostility in a deal between regional uh, arch rivals that could have wide-ranging implications. And, you know, Israel always uh, has been working on driving a wedge between Arab countries and Iran. Right. I mean, that's Israel's pet peeve, and, and not to mention egging the United States in getting involved to destroy uh, Iran's nuclear program and, and, and so forth. So that now... Uh, Riyadh and Tehran plan to reopen their embassies in an agreement mediated by no other than China. So it wasn't the European Union, it wasn't the United States, it wasn't even uh, allies in the in, in the neighborhood. It's that China uh, basically mediated this, and now they are restoring relations. Even though uh, I have to mention that. Uh, the, uh, um, the State Department or, or spokesman Kirby from the White House said that uh, Saudi Arabia had kept the White House informed on talks, and he downplayed uh, Beijing's role in brokering the agreement, saying yeah, that that the roadmap to reestablishing ties also included talks in Iraq and and Oman. Uh, they don't want to. It's a. Get the it's a com- yeah, but it's a complete joke. I mean, the big deal is that China is throwing its political, economic, and military weight around. The fact that China is cozying up to Putin and Russia and changing the whole geopolitical context right now. The fact that China has engaged in uh, war games in the Straits of Taiwan and uh, is building up in the South China Sea right now, Jamal. Uh, Xi Jinping just announced this week the really significant, you know, growth at a time after the COVID slowdown in China with a huge addition to their military budget. And China and the United States are on a collision course militarily. Putting that all in context and the fact that China can be the major broker in the Middle East right now seems like a major, major slap in the face to U.S. uh, Israeli uh, cooperation in the region to kind of direct how they want things. I actually think it's a big deal. I really so, do. I think. So here is the million-dollar question, Jess. How will Israel be able to bomb Iran and fly its airplanes over Saudi territory to get to Iran when Iran and Saudi Arabia have diplomatic relations? How will Saudi Arabia allow them, let's, let's put it, rephrase it in a way, to do so you know, because that's that's how they were thinking. So Arabia recently right. allowed uh, Israeli uh, commercial uh, 
fly to fly over its territory instead of circumventing. But now you need the shortest route to go to Iran because uh, Benjamin Netanyahu going back when, you know, several years when he was always threatening to bomb. Decade, decade. Uh, bomb so, uh, Iran. And, and the easiest way to do it is to fly jets, of course. He's looking to also for the support of the United States. When the Saudis are going to say, listen, you're, you're bombing our neighbor. We have diplomatic relations with Iran, but we don't have diplomatic relations with Israel. You know, we don't want your hostile act. We don't want you to take a hostile act using our airspace. So that's why I would say it's a big slap in the face. No, I, I completely agree, Jamal. And I think the long-term consequences for the United States exercising its dirty political uh, power in the Arab world, in the Middle East, in this particular space is is being called out. I mean, we've been talking about for decades, but for a long time, about how the apartheid regime is getting increasingly isolated from the rest of the world. But because the United States has been the big supporter of, of the Israelis, and we're going to kind of get to that in our second segment. But, you know, the the apartheid regime has always gotten a pass because they've been able to do their dirty work and they have the Abraham, Abraham Accord, so on and so forth. But this deal between Saudi Arabia and Iran changes the whole chessboard, if you will, Jamal. It changes everything. And I believe, I believe it disempowers the United States authority and power in the region significantly. I really do. I think this is a very big deal. And it's a story that we'll be following for a very long time. Well, I, I mean, it definitely, it's a shock because they thought that they were going uh, in a different direction. Right. And, and they saw this took a 180 and moved the other direction. And for, for, uh, for once, they did not uh, ask the United States to be the for mediator, permission. <laughs> you know, or, or for that matter, yeah, permission, because they did not ask. And, you know, at the end of the day, it is good, regardless of, you know, and we've we've criticized Saudi Arabia, I can't remember how many times we did, you know, their uh, abuse, uh, human rights violations, we've crit- criticized Iran. But at the end of the day, those are two neighboring countries that probably have more in common than differences. Absolutely, Jamal. And, and Israel absolutely. managed to kind of play that wedge. I mean, this is uh, divide and conquer. This is the policy that they follow. Yeah. And I think, you know, this, we'll, we'll see what happens. Now, whether or not anything fruitful comes from this diplomatic connection, it, time will tell. But China is rising when it comes to its presence in Africa and the Middle East, Jamal. This is a very, very big deal. And, uh, you know, we'll it's definitely a story that's going to be developing. We're going to talk about it in the future. So, uh, oh, so all of a sudden oh, now everyone uh, is talking it's so about sad. It's the, so the demonstrations sad. to restore <laughs> democracy in, uh, in Tel Aviv. Oh, it's so that, sad, Jamal. It's uh, your so favorite sad. Uh, writer for the New York Times, Tom Friedman, calls, so, calls the uh, uh, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, he calls him, he says, Chuck Schumer is Benjamin Netanyahu's useful idiot. Oh, okay. 
So, well, so this is this is how he goes about. You know, he says, and I'm quoting here. I saw pictures yesterday of Chuck Schumer smiling, yucking it up with his old pal BB in the Parliament. And my attitude is, you are a useful idiot, Chuck. You are a useful idiot just to get some picture back home in the Jewish week in New York. You know that might get you a few votes. Uh, well, like- can I just can I just say something, Jamal? That's like the pot calling the kettle black because Thomas Friedman has been a useful idiot for the apartheid regime for the majority of his uh, journalistic life. He's been an advocate. He's been a proponent. He's given he's given the apartheid regime cover for such a long time. And now, now, because of the so-called democracy kind of protests, he, he's kind of calling out Chuck Schumer. Who's calling out uh, Tom Friedman for the years of avoiding the question of Palestine and the abuse that Palestine and Palestinians have taken for 75 years with without any kind of claim of justice coming from uh, Thomas Friedman. I mean, it's, I mean, what Schumer did, we talked about last week, it was insulting, of course. But Tom Friedman calling out Chuck Schumer is equally insulting, I think. Yeah, well, I see a shift here. Uh, and I, maybe I'll fast but, forward because actually... Tom Friedman still believes that Israel is a, if you read his article carefully, he believes Israel is a is a democracy. He still and, believes and, it. And it needs to be protected. And, and that's the main difference that Israel has never been a democracy. It has been an, anything but a democracy. And, and it needs to be protected. However, these are, and, and, and I don't want to focus a lot on what he said, just Tom Friedman, because if now uh, you see all kinds of articles written by so-called liberal Zionists and, of course, others, criticizing Israel, criticizing for the very first time uh, APAC. I mean, they're trying to distance themselves right. Uh, right. From, from, from APAC. Right. And which is, I think it's very important because you have now a large number of uh, supporters of Israel, Jewish Americans, uh, who for many years, they just drank the Kool-Aid that uh, APAC gave them, uh, you know, donated a lot to, a lot of money through, through APAC and so forth and other organizations are saying, no, it works against our interest. And they are criticizing, I mean, Without, I don't want to get into their motives in a way to protect the democracy and not talk about the Palestinians because, you know, those people who are demonstrating, most of them, they're there. Even though I saw a few signs, I posted just this week a sign from this woman carrying in Hebrew in, in Tel Aviv saying, we ignored the occupation and now <laughs> they, they're coming after us or something like this. So now even there are a few, few of those demonstrators, eh, not a lot eh. of them thinking that, you know, we ignored all these abuses, human rights violations of Palestinians, etc. And now they're coming, they're coming after us. And, and there are a lot of these people who now are kind of shocked, shocked by Israel turning into a dictatorship, turning into Jamal, uh, turning into using words, uh, you know, um, uh, such as, um, you know, but listen, it's, it, and other, I know, but, and other it's, things. but it's hard to get really, I mean, you, I, I could see why you're a little, you're a little up or uh, positive about this. I won't say optimistic, 
for me, it's uh, it's very difficult to to swallow this, to see it as positive, because you and I both know that um, there this has nothing to do with the reality on the ground in 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 Palestine right now. That the brutality, the home demolition, the land theft, the murders that are going on, the settler violence is going at an even more rapid pace, and Smotrich is. Coming to the United well, States, the, exactly. so how could we get ex- how and, could we get excited about and, this? And I said, and that shocks people like Thomas Friedman, who calls basically uh, APAC is Netanyahu's sock puppet. He calls them, and he's shocked. He's so shocked that he's pleading with the Biden administration not to allow Smotrich in. And that's when you decided when you started with the intro that. The administration lives in, in in the past, and they still do that. They still keep drink drinking Netanyahu's Kool Aid, and Absolutely. they are allowing Smotrich, giving him a visa, a diplomatic visa with in full immunity, to come to uh, the U.S. Last time we talked about it, I thought to save embarrassment, and they said they were working on this. That Smotrich would cancel his his trip. Yeah, and I didn't Except think everybody's think... embarrassment, but they're so insisting on bringing him into this country, and that's why you find these people they are shocked by the Biden administration. I think here I read, you know, like how they're still it's still in their DNA to support Israel no matter what, and that's actually the reality. The well, Biden administration, the State Department, uh, just the U.S. Congress. Uh, Democrats or it uh, doesn't matter, Republicans, it is in their DNA to support Israel no matter what. I think that's right, Jamal. And I, I think this is going to, I think this is all leading to kind of, a, you know, fractures within the Democratic Party, you know, fractures with the more progressive kind of justice driven aspects of the Democratic Party. I mean, what Biden is doing, Jamal, from a political perspective is getting ready for a run in 2024 to get reelected, obviously. And he knows or he believes, I don't know if he knows this, but he believes that he has to kowtow to Netanyahu and the apartheid racists within the apartheid regime in order to win re-election, just like he's getting ready to approve uh, a pipeline, you know, an oil pipeline in Alaska, contrary to everything that he has said and contrary to what progressive elements. He's also changing the, the, the kind of immigration policy on the border with Mexico that he's going to start deporting people again, which he vilified the Trump administration for, uh, administration for. So what you're seeing, Jamal, is, you know, basically, uh, uh, a kind of invigorated Biden kind of shifting to the middle and to the right. Because he believes that this is going to get him reelected. He doesn't realize that he's digging himself a really deep hole and he won't get out of it. Even if there is a major shift by those who support Israel, like uh, American Jews in this country. It's not going to happen. I don't think He I don't still see... believes that he's going to get uh, more money. And I have to say, of course, he, he also, I mean, I don't think it's Biden, it's his advisors. They remind him that Gerald Ford saw three. Uh, reassessment of the Israel relationship, and he was a one-term president. Jimmy Carter and George 
H.W. Bush also took on Israel, and they only got one term. So that's that's where that's the direction he he's, he's yeah, yeah. heading. Even yeah, though yeah. there is a major shift in uh, liberal yeah. Zionists in this country, I can't get excited about the shift in liberal Zionists, Jamal. I'm sorry, I'm not excited. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> All right, so uh, we're coming to an end of another show. Uh, this is Arab Talk on KPOO San Francisco, 89.5 FM. Go to our website, arabtalkradio.com, to download the latest shows, and we will talk to you next week. We'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.